So one of the things that are really challenging when you are talking about the Bible, when you're talking about Christianity, is, is this question. What do you say about the wrath of God? Right? That's something that we don't mention that often. Um, it seems shocking to us and to many people that a loving God can actually send people to hell. It is shocking to us that a gracious God would be willing to pour out judgment and destroy people with his wrath. I mean, we understand the concept of God's justice. We understand that his anger is righteous, that God is just and fair in every possible way. All throughout scripture, we, we see that. But when we come to passages like this, or the entire book of Joshua, really, on and on again, you see the conquest of the Canaanites, and you ask the question, really, what did these people do to deserve all this? And you kind of go to different places in the Bible, and you see how God, he pours out his judgment upon people, and you, you ask the question, I mean, really, does God have to take things this far? Especially when you are sharing the gospel with someone who does not know about God, you highlight the, the love of God to them. You know, God loves you, God cares for you, his mercy and his grace is available for you, but you want to, in a way, hide the wrath of God. It's like when you're talking about your friend and when you're talking about your family, there are things that you want to highlight that are really, really good, but there's that one secret that you don't want other people to know about your mom and dad or about your family or about your friends. And that one thing for us is the wrath of God, right? It's, it's his judgment. You know, every pastor tends to step away from this topic because no one wants to hear about an angry God in a Sunday morning. That's just a bit too much. Now, we, we tend to think, now that we have to wrestle with this concept, we compartmentalize this. We say, well, the wrath of God is an Old Testament concept. That's what we see, you know, back in the days. You know, in the Old Testament, God is holy, he is righteous, he is angry, he is strict, uh, and he has his laws. And you come to the New Testament, it's really all about love. His mercy, his grace, his kindness, his, his patience. And thank God we're not living in the Old Testament. That's our response. Right? We say we are New Testament Christians. And so we are free from the wrath of God. But here's the thing. All throughout Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, you see a clear picture of God's wrath. You can't deny it. You can't miss it. Jesus, in his, his most famous sermon that's recorded in the Bible, Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, he ends his sermon like this. He says, there are two pathways that you can take in life. You can enter into a, a wide gate, which leads to an easy way, which many take, and that leads to destruction. And you can go to the narrow gate, go down a, a hard pathway, and that leads to life. So at the end, he's really inviting people to choose life over destruction. You go to the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. You look at that verse, and we highlight the love of God in that verse, but notice that if you don't believe in Jesus, that it says clearly that you will perish. In fact, at the end of that chapter, Jesus says this, in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And this is what we see in the book of Joshua. God is leading his people. He's advancing his kingdom into this new territory called the land of Canaan, the promised land. And 
And as the Israelites, they are victorious in every possible way, you see that there is destruction that, that falls upon the people of, of Canaan. And, and, and it's a very clear picture where if you are with God, there is life and there is grace. But if you are against God, there is judgment and destruction. It's, it's consistent throughout the book of Joshua and throughout the Bible. And so in today's story, I just want to highlight really two things. The first thing is the sinful nature of mankind. And the second thing is the stunning nature of God's grace. The sinful nature of mankind and the stunning nature of God's grace. The first half of this story is all about the sinful nature of mankind. Look at verse 1. It says this, As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill of hill country and in the lower land along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the uh, Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Zebusites heard this. So basically everyone in the land of Canaan heard this. And it says in verse 2, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So here's what's happening. In chapter 6, Israel, they take over Jericho. They bring down the walls of Jericho. In chapter 7, they stumble a little bit because of sin. But in chapter 8, they redeem themselves. They bounce back with an incredible victory against the city of Ai. And now everyone hears about um, the, the things that are happening in the land of Canaan with the God of Israel. And we see here that they're desperate for survival. People who are living in this land, they're, they're saying, okay, there's no way, by the way, we can go one-on-one -on -one against the Israelites. We can't fight against them. So what we need to do, we saw what happened to Jericho and Ai, just closing down our city gates and just staying in our city is not going to do it. So what we need to do is we need to form a super alliance. We need to form a super army and take over the Israelites. That's what we need to do. And we're going to see how that turns out in chapter 10. But out of this plan, there's one group in the land of Canaan that says, no, I have a different idea. They have a different response. They see things the same way. They recognize that God is advancing with his people. But the Gibeonites, they live in the land of Canaan. They are, they are a subgroup of the, the, the Hivites. And they too are aware of all that God has done in the land of Egypt. They too are aware of all that God has done throughout this journey in the wilderness and now in the land of, of Canaan. And unlike the other nations, they are not convinced that they can defeat Israel at this point. So instead of defeating Israel, they decide to deceive Israel. Their plan is not to fight Israel. Their plan is to fool Israel. Look at verse 3. It says this, and, but when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they on their part act with cunning, meaning they act shrewdly in a crafty sneaky way they act and what did they do they hit the yard sales they hit the thrift shops they went to goodwill and they gathered all the worn clothes that they can get right worn out sacks for their donkeys worn out wineskins worn out sandals worn out clothes all these things from head to toe they dress up in a way that everything is worn out four times it says things are worn out and if that wasn't enough it says at the end of verse five they got bread but that bread was dry and crumbly and why do they do this Look at verse 6. It says, And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal. So they go straight into the heart of the Israel's camp, straight to their leader, Joshua, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. Now this, this is incredible because the people who are living in the land of Canaan, to some degree, we notice that they have an awareness of God's word. We don't know exactly how, but the Gibeonites, 
they are aware of what God has told Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 20. God says in Deuteronomy chapter 20, when Israel, when you guys go to war, first offer peace. And if the other party responds in peace, what you can do is you can take them in as servants. But you can only do this for countries that are far away. For the people who are living in the land of Canaan, you have to devote them to destruction. Why? It's not because I'm against just, you know, I'm against a specific race or a specific skin color or a specific people group that's living in a specific region. No, I'm against the ungodly. And the Canaanites, they do not love me. For the longest time, they rebelled against me. And so what God says, if you make treaties with these people, you too will sin. You too will follow their pathway. You too will worship their idols. So I'm protecting you. So I'm telling you, instead of taking them in, devote them to complete destruction. That, that's a command. If they're from far away, they can make a peace covenant, a treaty with them to take them in as servants. And if they're from nearby, they have to devote these people to destruction and drive them out of the promised land. And the Gibeonites, they know exactly what's going on. They know about this promise. They know what God has said to his people. And they also know that they don't stand a chance against God. And so what we see is they act shrewdly. They dress up. They, they, they are acting as if they are from far away. And they ask the question, look at us in verse 7. Perhaps you, and, 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 and in response to this, the men of Israel, they ask the question. They're suspicious. They say, perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? So looking how these people are dressed up, yeah, obviously something is kind of fishy. So the, the Israelites, they say, well, something is kind of off. I mean, why would you be here? So maybe are you, are you acting in a certain way to make a peace covenant with us? And the Gibeonites say, no, 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 Joshua, we are your servants. So a little bit of flattery, right? And Joshua said to them, who are you? And where do you come from? So notice, there's a level of suspicion here. In verse 9, it says this. And the Gibeonites, they respond, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. Now, this is how low they're willing to go. They, they're using the love of God that Israel has to leverage them to get what they want, basically. They are acting as if they are their servants. And, and for we heard a report of all that God has done in Egypt and all on the other nations, it says in verse 11, so our elders and our, all of the inhabitants of our country came together. So they, they said, take provision in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now and make a covenant with us. And they show them the bread. They show them the clothes. They show them the worn out shoes. And they say, basically, yeah, take a look for yourself. We are from a far distant country. And still being suspicious about what's going on, it says in verse 14, So the men of Israel took some of their provision, their bread, that was dry and crumbly. And sure enough, when they did a taste test, it was dry and crumbly. And it says, but they did not ask the counsel of the Lord. So it says in verse 15, And Joshua made with them peace and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. This is a strange passage, right? There's so much that we can, we can talk about, but I think one thing that Joshua 9 is reminding us is this. Our world, our journey of faith is full of deception. It's not just full of opposition or enemies, but it's full 
of deception. Our world is full of deception. You just think about how many calls you get that are spam calls, right? You, get, you just think about how many emails you get that are, that are trying to deceive you. All the false promises that are made to you. Just buy this product and everything will change about your life. And you buy it and it's like nothing, well, nothing has changed. It's, it's not working. You just think about everyone who is, is acting in front of a screen and you think, man, those are amazing people. And then you hear about their personal lives and, and those who are so lovable in front of a screen, when you get close to their lives, they, 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 are, they are covered with all sorts of scandals. And it's not just the world. You, you look at pastors, preachers, leaders of the church, and they preach holiness every single week. But you hear scandals about how their life is so unholy, how they fall fall short of God's glory. And you don't have to actually point fingers to someone else. The person that really deceives you a lot is yourself. So often, you tell yourself a lie. It's going to be okay. God is not going to say anything about this. It's not a big deal. You know, we are so critical about others, yet so gracious to ourselves. Why? Because we are deceitful people, and this aligns with what God says in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart, our heart is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately sick. So being deceitful is not a problem just in the world. It's a problem that we face inside of us. And why is this so important? It's because our ultimate enemy, Satan, what the Bible says about him is in Revelation 12, 9, he is called the deceiver of the whole world. In John 8, 44, Jesus calls Satan the liar, and he is the father of lies. So when you participate in this deceiving nature, when you are not truthful in your walk, you are not imitating God, you are imitating Satan, and you are participating not in the nature of God, but in the nature of Satan. That's why Jesus constantly tells us, walk in light, walk in truth, walk with integrity. Why? It's not necessarily because, you know, if you lie or deceive someone, something's going to fall on you or something bad is going to happen to you, but you are becoming like the enemy. Do you notice that? Joshua 9 reminds us that there is a real enemy out there. I mean, there's a lot of forms of deception, but really the root of deception is Satan, and his ways are very subtle. His schemes are subtle, and he wants to take us down. And what it also points out is that you are more vulnerable to deception than you actually think that you are more vulnerable to deception that, than you actually think. Just think about the, the leaders of Israel here, or the Israelites at this point. They question the Gibeonites at first, so they know that something is fishy. They even sample the food. They, they touch um, the garments of, of the Gibeonites, and they do their due diligence. They do their investigation. They carefully analyze the situation. Not only that, they are fully aware of what God's expectations are. They are fully aware of God's word. But at the end of the day, why did they sin? Why did they make a foolish decision? It says in verse 14, because they did not ask counsel from the Lord. Despite all the Bible knowledge that they had and the life experience that they had, they end up making a foolish mistake. And this should scare us in a way. Because many of us have a lot of Bible knowledge, but we don't have a lot of Bible wisdom. Knowledge is something you, you know about something. Wisdom is how do you apply what you know. You can have knowledge about driving a car and how to 
you know, move a car. But it's one thing to know how to drive a car. It's another thing to be wise and be a safe driver, right? So it's the same with God's word. There's so many people who think they are invincible to deception because they sit in every Bible study. They heard every sermon. They read through the Bible multiple times and noticed that the problem with the Israelites, it's not their Bible knowledge that was an issue. It was their wisdom. And where do we see wisdom come from? Well, it begins with our position towards the Lord. Beginning of wisdom, it begins with the fear of the Lord. This is a classic example where man trusts in their own counsel rather than the counsel of the Lord. As it says in Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. This is exactly the opposite of Proverbs 3, 5. Yeah, there was the word of God and, and careful careful thoughts behind all and good intentions behind the decision. But at the end of the day, what Joshua did was he relied more on his own understanding than fearing God in his decision. And he finds out, and the rest of Israel finds out three days later that this was a big mistake. Because as they're marching through the promised land, they hit the city of Gibeon, and they see some familiar faces. And they say, what? Wait, I thought you guys were from far away. And they say, surprise, we actually live here. And so you see in verse 18, the the congregation, the Israel, they they are murmuring against their leaders. They're basically saying, okay, come on, we got to go after them. They they tricked us. They deceived us. They sinned against us. And God clearly says to to wipe out every people group in the land of Canaan. So we got to go in and we got to destroy this people group. Especially that they wronged us, we got to retaliate. So they are all fired up. They're, they're ready to go. But look at verse 18 one more time. It says, But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And on and on again, we are reminded that the only reason why the Israelites don't overtake the Gibeonites is because they have sworn in the name of the Lord. They have made a promise. They have given their word that they would make a peace covenant with the Gibeonites. And it says in verse 19, we have sworn to them by the Lord. Verse 20, the oath that we have sworn to them. We can't break that. You know, a lot of times when someone hurts us, when someone wrongs us, we think wronging that person will make things right. But notice that two wrongs does not make things right. Yes, it's true that the Gibeonites wronged the Israelites. But by retaliating to what they experienced, the Israelites would have wronged God, in a sense, because they would have broken the promise that they made in the name of the Lord. So Joshua and the leaders, they recognized this. We have made a mistake in the beginning. We failed, we messed up, but we're not going to mess up again. Because the name of the Lord, his reputation is on the line, we're going to keep our promises. Because if there's one thing that the world should know, it's the fact that our Lord keeps his promises. So we see in verse 22, Joshua summons the Gibeonites and he says, Why did you deceive us? Saying, verse 23, Now, therefore, you are cursed. So Joshua recognizes and he points out the fact that what you did was absolutely wrong. So this is not a lesson that teaches us you can use deception to get your way and to gain something (laughs) that you want in life. No, Joshua points out that this was absolutely wrong and sinful and evil. 
Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. So at the end of the day, instead of destroying the Gibeonites, we see that Joshua was willing to spare them, take them in as servants. They made a peace covenant with the Gibeonites, not in the most conventional way, but nonetheless they did. So they honored their promise in the name of the Lord. They did not take on foolish vengeance upon this people. And you kind of see throughout this story that there's not a single person in this story that is perfect, that everyone is sinful in different ways. The Gibeonites are sinful and deceitful. The leaders of Israel are foolish and prideful. And you see the rest of Israel, they just simply want, they want vengeance. They want to wrong other people, an eye for an eye. And in the midst of the sinful nature of mankind, what we see is the stunning nature of God's grace. The ending of this story, it actually reveals God's passion for the nations, for different people groups that right now not, might not belong to the people of God, but it shows that God desires to reach out to those people and actually save them. Now, this chapter has a lot of similarities with Joshua 2 when we saw Rahab actually you know, help the, the spies and with her faithfulness because she recognized that they had no chance to withstand the, the Israel army. She made a promise. She said, hey, if I help you, could you remember me when Jericho falls? And, and Israel remembered that promise. So while Jericho was destroyed, Rahab and her family was brought in to the family of God. And so you kind of see a similar story here where the Gibeonites, they are not originally part of the people of God. But they now are experiencing the blessings of God and they're part of the people of God. They're part of the covenant community. But the confusing part is this. They lied to get in. And how do you explain that? Their, their desires were not clean, right? Their intentions were not pure. It was sinful. And it seems very odd that they are receiving the blessings of God. But look at verse 24. This is what they say. When Joshua questions them, why did you do this? This is how they respond. They answer Joshua, verse 24, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So two things that they acknowledge. They say that we knew that you were advancing, that your God was advancing. Number two, we knew that we had no chance. And if we stayed in our place, we would be destroyed. Nothing else. That's all that they knew. They recognized that they were in trouble. They recognized that they were actually in a helpless situation and they were facing the wrath of God And what they decided to do, instead of living in their sin, they took initiative and approached the people of God. And they simply said, we just did this really because we wanted to live. We wanted to be saved. We simply wanted a covenant so that we, you would spare our, our lives. And with the little faith that they had, they walked straight into the heart of the camp of Israel, enemy territory. And they acknowledged that God is actually the Lord and they would be destroyed without his favor. And I think this reminds me of, of something. A lot of times we look down on people who say, I want to believe in Jesus because I don't, don't want to go to hell. 
But I think being terrified of hell is an incredible reason why you should believe in Jesus. Because someone who is afraid of hell is someone who recognizes that there is judgment that's upon them. It's someone that recognizes that they are actually in the wrong, that they're not people who deserve God's grace, that, that they recognize that they are against God, that they are enemies of God, and if they don't move, if they stay put, that they're going to be destroyed, absolutely no question. I'm not saying that this is the best reason for you to believe in Jesus, but is it a godly reason to believe in Jesus? Absolutely. You think about the message of Jonah and what he preached to Nineveh. It was very simple. In 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed, period. That was his message. John the Baptist, the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent. Jesus, the kingdom is now here. Repent and believe. There is this sense of urgency that is being preached by the prophets and by Jesus. That there is one God and you need to be on his side. That there is one Lord, and if you don't belong to him, then you'll be destroyed by him and his people. And, and when you think about this, what God is really offering at this point is not he's not just trying to scare you and make you afraid of all that's going to happen, but he's offering you this incredible grace as you're recognizing that there's no hope for your life. He's saying that if you are willing to come to me, even though if your motivations are not that pure, even if you don't have all the right answers, even if your understanding is fairly limited, if you simply come to me with a desperate heart and a submissive heart, that's enough. When you recognize that I'm the Lord and you want to be on my side, but you know that you deserve nothing to be on my side, then I'll show you grace and mercy. And he did so by sending his one and only son, Jesus. And on the cross, when Jesus died, it says the wrath of God was poured on Jesus, that anyone who believes in him, instead of facing and, and experiencing the wrath of God, Jesus takes that wrath on our behalf so that we can have a life that we can never earn on our own. And that's the amazing grace that we see in this passage. That's the stunning grace that we see in this passage. If you're thinking, yeah, man, Joshua, I feel Joshua. Yeah, I, I feel the Israelites. Obviously, there are places that we could connect with them. But at the end of the day, we are like the Gibeonites. That we don't deserve anything from God. And we are deceitful in our nature. And we have no business entering into the camp of God. For some reason, God awakens us, gives us this urgency he helps us realize that God is advancing, that his kingdom is coming, and the only way that we can keep our lives is by staying on his side. And so we throw ourselves at the mercy of God, and we see God do the rest. And this is not the end of the story, by the way. If you studied the Gibeonites, what happens is down generations, you know, for generations and generations, they remain faithful in the camp of Israel. When Israel is dividing the land after they have conquered the land of Canaan, the, the land of Gibeon. It's given to Aaron, which the temple is going to be built upon. We also see one of David's mighty warriors was a Gibeonite. We also see that when Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall, we see the Gibeonites are fully integrated into the people of God at that point. So did the Gibeonites, did they sin? Absolutely. Were, were they deceitful? Absolutely. 
Were the Israelites, were they foolish? Absolutely. Prideful? Absolutely. But still, God, through his sovereign ways, he pours out his mercy and grace for people who are willing to come to, who are willing to come to, who are willing to come to his side, who acknowledge that they are children of wrath, children of destruction. And when they are willing to throw themselves at the feet of the cross, that God covers them with his grace and his mercy. And that's what he has done for you and for me today. So let's live in this grace. Let's remember that's what's more stunning in the Bible. Is, is, is a lot of times we are shocked by God's wrath in the Bible, but what should really shock us is God's amazing grace. The question is, how can a loving God send people to hell? The question is, how can a holy, righteous, just God send anyone into heaven? The only answer is grace. And he's offering that to you today. Let's pray.